and brave the cold this morning. The sun is shining and beautiful day and so just a privilege to worship the Lord and we continue to do that again and I'm always really excited, always thrilled to to get up here and have 45 minutes where we worship the Lord by sitting under the word of the Lord and we continue once again through the gospel of Mark and it's a joy to be tracking with Jesus in his ministry and if you're visiting with us this morning we're going verse by verse through the gospel of Mark and as we go through the gospel of Mark we're given insights into the life of Jesus as he heads to the cross to die As he headed to the cross to die, he lived out his days and we get to see those as we go through the gospel. And that'll be the case this morning. The passage that we're going to look at this morning is sandwiched between the Sabbath conflicts that we've looked at and the choosing of the twelve. It's a small little portion, but a significant little portion of scripture. As all scripture is inspired, it's all beneficial. And so we get to see a life. A day in the life of our Lord this morning. Our Lord and Savior, who is so precious to us, so dear to us, was given his name, his very name, Jesus, for it is anchored in his very purpose, Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. And that is that he is to save and will save his people from their sins. And Jesus did that primarily by dying on the cross. Yet on his way to die for us, he lived for us. And we'll see that in our passage this morning. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Mark chapter 3. We'll pick up in verse 7. We looked last time at verses 1 to 6 of the second of the two Sabbath conflicts. And so follow along with me in your Bible as we read together Mark chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. God says in his word... Jesus withdrew to the sea with his disciples and a great multitude from Galilee followed and also from Judea and from Jerusalem and from Idumea and beyond the Jordan and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great number of people heard of all that he was doing and came to him. And he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready for him because of the crowd so that they would not crowd him. For he had healed many, with the result that all those who had afflictions pressed around him in order to touch him. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. Let's pray. Father, we give you great thanks. Lord, we've sung and gathered and we worship. And as the redeemed, we rejoice in that you're a good God who does great things. And so now as we sit under your word, would you do great things? Would you help us, Lord, to be attentive? Would you help us, Father, to be all the more eager as we leave here today to live for your glory? For we exist to bring you glory. And so we ask, Lord, would you pour out grace upon grace now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, responses are interesting things, are they not? I mean, an accident or a criminal incident bring about certain types of responses. We grab our phone and 
dial 111 or 000 or 911, wherever you may be. For that type of incident, there's a certain, certain type of response. When we learn of the joy of a birth, there's another type of response. We rejoice. Different circumstances bring about different responses. And we're going to look at some responses this morning. Specifically, responses regarding Jesus. We've just concluded, as I said, the two Sabbath conflicts. And they were a crash course in what self-righteousness looks like, sanctimoniousness looks like. And those Sabbath conflicts we saw last Sunday climaxed with the declaration of the nation of Israel, you recall, both religiously through the Pharisees and politically through the Herodians, that Jesus was to be killed. That was the declaration of the nation of Israel, that this Jesus was to be killed. We saw that deep-seated hate, you remember, in verse 6. And we pick up this morning in verse 7. And this morning we are given, as I said, a day in the life of the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ on his way to the cross. On his way to the cross, fully and completely obedient to the will of the Father, the Father's will. And so this is a day, a day in the life of Jesus Christ. And it's a full and demanding day. And amidst the demands and difficulties, there are some responses. And this morning, we'll consider three responses that took place on this very demanding day for Jesus. And as we go along, we'll glean much from them, I believe. As I said, responses are interesting things. They can dictate and determine much. Outcomes and results can easily and so easily stem from our responses. Good and bad situations bring about good and bad responses. And so let's take a look at what's taking place here. We will see in our passage, Mark chapter 3, verses 7 to 12, three responses that will indeed reinforce for us just how truly awesome Jesus is. Truly awesome our Lord is. I want to give you three things to hang your thoughts on, hang your mind on. And there's three responses in the first headline. The first point is the Lord pulls away. We'll see that in verses 7, the very beginning of verse 7. We'll then see that the people press in, in verses 7 to 10. And then we'll see the demons pronounce in verses 11 to 12. The Lord pulls away, the people press in, and the demons pronounce. This passage this morning, verses 7 through 12, is almost like a summary statement of Jesus' life and ministry. And it is, as I said, sandwiched in between Two significant events, the Sabbath conflicts and the choosing of the twelve. It's sandwiched between the attacks upon Jesus, the conspiracy to kill Jesus, and the choosing of the twelve. The Pharisees had such scorn for Jesus that they wanted to kill him. Yet as we've just read, and as we'll see in our passage this morning, the people had such value of Jesus that they wanted to crowd him. Three responses. The first one is from Jesus. The second and third are to Jesus. So first, let's begin. We see a response from Jesus and it's this. The Lord pulls away. Look at the beginning of verse 7. Jesus withdrew. Jesus withdrew to the sea. 
having just been rejected by the religious elite of the day in verse 6, the self-righteous Pharisees, Jesus now pulls away. And what we see here is that the conflicts with the Pharisees in no way reduce Jesus' resolve. It may appear upon initial thought of him withdrawing to the sea that he is just pulling away due to cowardice or apathy. I can assure you, and quite the opposite is true. Jesus withdrew. And the reason Jesus withdrew, for at his heart is a desire to do the will of the Father. So, in response to a conspiracy from the entire nation, politically and religiously, to kill him, Jesus withdraws. Now, Matthew, in his account, and turn with me there to Matthew chapter 12, I want to show you this in Matthew chapter 12. I'll show you why this withdrawal from Jesus is in no way running away. Matthew chapter 12. Look at verse 15. We'll look at verse 14, really. Matthew chapter 12, verse 14. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. This is the same account. Look at the very next words. But Jesus aware of this but Jesus aware of this withdrew from there many followed him and he healed them all and warned them to not tell who he was that Jesus withdrew because he was aware that they planned to kill him there's obviously an understanding once again that he is God he knows the thoughts and hearts and minds of man and he was aware that they had indeed been conspiring to kill him but Jesus being aware of this withdrew from there Jesus could have obliterated them then and there right he could have confronted them then and there he could have dealt with it then and there he could have handed himself over then and there but he didn't he withdrew why because as I said Jesus was about doing the will of the father And we see here, from Matthew's account, that very thing. That Jesus is a servant. Remember the great aim of Mark is to present Jesus as the suffering servant and in full majesty as the Son of God. Continue on in Mark. I mean, sorry, Matthew. Look at verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. What was to fulfill? The whole thing about many following him, him healing many. This whole thing. Him withdrawing. Him warning them not to tell who he was. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the Isaiah the prophet. Look at verse 18. Behold my servant. My servant whom I have chosen. My beloved. In whom my soul is well pleased. Matthew says the entire day of withdrawing and healing of the masses of people is a fulfillment of prophecy from Isaiah 42.1. So Jesus withdraws, not from cowardice or fear, but from servanthood. 
The son left the rejection of the religious elite and kept on serving, doing the will of the father. Why? Because it wasn't yet the father's time, nor the father's timing that the son should die and his ministry should end. Right here. There was more to do. The chosen servant, the son, had life to live. Had people to serve and to save. And so he withdraws here. He pulls away. And by doing so, he continues on the redemptive plan and assignment given to him from his father. Jesus was about the father's will and Jesus was about the father's work. John chapter 4 verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. By handing himself over then and there to these guys and to be killed at this stage would not finish all the work that the father had sent him to do. That he had assigned for his chosen servant, his beloved son. And so what we see is Jesus withdrawing from the conflict, withdrawing from the head-on clash with the Pharisees. And what this actually does is it makes him more accessible to a great number of people, a great number of people that he came to serve and a great number of people that he came to save. And so Jesus is continuing to do what a servant does, and that is to expel themselves for the kingdom of God. Verse 7 continues. It continues on and lets us know that his disciples all were, also went with him to the Sea of Galilee. His disciples were guilty by association. In the eyes of the Pharisees, they too were objects of scorn and ridicule. They were also being prepared for a greater task that will obviously soon be assigned to them in Mark chapter 3, continuing on when Jesus will personally appoint 12 of them for ministry. So the first response we see here this morning from our text is from Jesus. He pulls away to continue to serve. And as he does, we see another response. Look at the second part. Back to Mark. Look at the second part of verse 7. In Mark chapter 3, we see another response. The people press in. The people press in. And a great multitude from Galilee followed, and also from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, and beyond the Jordan, and the vicinity of Tyre and Sidon. A great multitude. Mark is stressing here the point that this is a massive multitude. A multitude is a very large group in and of itself, but this is a great multitude. From Galilee, they followed from there. Also from Judea and Jerusalem and from Idumea. Now, Idumea is where Judas came from. So as they came, this is where Judas was swept up. This is where the betrayer was scooped up. They came from beyond the Jordan, the area of Tyre and Sidon, a great number of people. And Mark is stressing here that Jesus was popular among the people. They flocked to him. Jesus arrived 
Jesus cast out demons, healed every illness and disease as we've seen. And he has done these things and he has been greatly opposed by the Jewish leaders, but greatly sought after by the people. We've just spent many weeks for the entirety of Mark chapter 2, in fact, along with the first six verses of Mark chapter 3, looking at the opposition to Jesus. Intense conflict and opposition to Jesus in his ministry. And now the Spirit of God, through the pen of Mark, with Peter recollecting, for you recall that's how we got the first message, the Gospel of Mark. Now the Spirit of God wants us to see that amidst much opposition to his ministry, there is also immense popularity. The opposition from the Pharisees had very, very deep roots. And so Mark is laboring here by mentioning all these locations and great multitude and great crowd and great number. He's laboring here to show us that this is an immense, immense crowd. And this opposition... Well, the popularity was great. The opposition had deep roots. The opposition was anchored in fear. Due to the massive influence that Jesus was having over the massive crowds. Let me show you this. Flick over to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. This is the death and resurrection of Lazarus. Look at verse 38. So Jesus, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Look at verse 41. So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. Look at verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Verse 44. The man who had died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Now look at verse 45. Therefore, therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him next verse but some of them went to the pharisees and told them the things which jesus had done look at verse 47 therefore the chief priests and the pharisees convened a council and were saying what are we doing for this man is performing many signs verse 48 if we let him go on like this All men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. (laughs) Interesting. Anchored in fear. Fear due to the influence that Jesus had over the massive crowds. So Jesus was hated by the Pharisees. We saw last week he was hated without a cause. Yet he was popular with the people. And certainly that popularity with the people only incensed the Pharisees further, only ignited them all the more in their desire to destroy Jesus. And so Mark shows us here that people have come from all over. 
That's a point Mark is making very clear. And those regions and places that he lists cover the north, the south, the east and the west. So they've come from everywhere. And it's a huge number. It's a great multitude. Everyone from every angle is coming to see Jesus. Jesus has escaped the ones trying to kill him. And yet now he is surrounded by those pressing in all around him. And some commentators believe that this crowd was upwards of tens of thousands. You think, whoa. Well, think about it. You recall the feeding of 5,000? Just mere mention of that. This is a great multitude and a great number coming from all over the place. This This is a huge number. This crowd is described in terms and conveyed in such a way as being much bigger than 5,000 or 4,000. So, larger crowd, a great multitude of crowds. 30 to 40,000, who knows? 50,000, who knows? All coming to Jesus. Why was he so popular with them? Why? Why were they flocking to him? If you go back to Mark chapter 3 and look at verse 10, it tells us why. Look there. For he had healed many. That's why. That's why they were coming. Jesus has been healing so many. And as I said in an earlier message, he is doing so to validate who he is. And also... To give a preview of what the coming kingdom will look like. A kingdom where there is no more sin and suffering and pain. I mean, with Jesus' healing thus far, think about it. Blind have received sight. Leprosy has been cleansed. Withered and deformed hands have been restored. The sick have been made well. The paralytic has been made to get up and walk. There is complete healing with Jesus. Complete healing of whole and organic diseases and disabilities. And also the demon possessed have been delivered. We've seen that multiple times. With Jesus, this is no dog and pony show. With Jesus, this is no lights, camera, action, rubbish. This is true and lasting healing. That's why people are coming in the droves. That's why he's popular with these people that have come from all over the place. Jerusalem and everywhere. Look at the end of verse 8. A great number of people heard of all he was doing and came to him. Many of these people, most likely those from outside of Galilee, they'd not even seen Jesus. They'd never seen him do any of this healing or anything like that. They had, as it says there, they had heard of him. And they hurry to him for healing. And as the people hurry, the people press in. So much so that you look there, Jesus says, in the start of verse 9, and he told his disciples that a boat should stand ready. He has the disciples get a boat ready. Is this not giving us a wonderful example of being practical and prepared. Even the Son of God Himself is displaying to us a well-organized, prepared way of life. 
as the pressures of, and circumstances of life press in and arise, he takes heed and he plans accordingly. He doesn't just hit cruise control and say, she'll be right, mate. Nor does he spin out of control. When a demanding day is pressed upon him. He plans and prepares. And so the boat is put out just offshore due to the immense crowd pushing in. We don't we don't obviously don't hear or see of the boat being used, but it was there just in case. Jesus would often use boats to preach from. He'd use a boat as a pulpit and proclaim his message. But not here. It was there just in case though. And so they've come from all over the place and Jesus is very, very popular with them. But understand this. He's very, very popular with them, but it's not from the words that he was preaching. And you remember, that's the reason he said he came. Was to preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. That all men and women everywhere should turn away from their sin and trust in him. And that there is a coming kingdom that you must become a citizen of. That was his primary aim. I mean, he said that in verse 38 of chapter 2. This is why he came. That's the primary reason why he came. The words that he was preaching. But Jesus is popular with them, not because of those words, but for his healing. For his healing. Turn with me again to John chapter 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus just fed the 5,000. Now that crowd was actually much bigger than 5,000. This is an account of probably just the men there. There would have been teenagers and kids and women. This would have been a lot bigger than 5,000. Look at verse 16 of John chapter 6. Jesus just fed the 5,000. Look at verse 16. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Look at verse 22. The next day, the crowd that stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other small boat there except one and that Jesus had not entered with his disciples into the boat, but that his disciples had gone alone. There came other small boats from Tiberias near to the place where they ate the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the small boats and came to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Now look at verse 26. This is to an immense crowd seeking Jesus. He just fed them. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, because you ate the loaves of the bread and were filled. What do you mean they saw signs? They, they, they hadn't, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the bread. Yes, they saw signs, but they didn't see the meaning of those signs. They didn't see the significance of those signs. Jesus is saying to them, you are simply here just because you were fed a meal. 
You are here because your hunger was taken away. Your physical need was met. A temporal need was satisfied. That's why you're here. That's why you're seeking after me and jumping in boats and asking where I am. The motivation of this massive multitude of people was for their physical benefit. Back to Mark chapter 3. For the majority of this crowd, and I don't want to be too harsh on this crowd. I mean, this crowd, medicine was probably a nothing thing. Suffering from all types of ailments and all types of disabilities. They wanted to be healed. But the motivation for this crowd here that had come from everywhere to press in against Jesus was for their physical benefit. There was simply a desperation for their physical needs to be met. And there is not one mention or even an indication of concern for their spiritual need to be met. We live in a day where this is still the case for so many who profess to follow Jesus, is it not? Jesus has become kind of like a vending machine for so many, a supermarket to so many. What can be drawn from Him without ever really giving their life to Him? And because cheap and shallow Jesus has been preached by so many for so long, we have an abundance of people using Jesus as an add-on, an accessory into their life. Using Jesus for what benefits them for today. Instead of the one who alone has the words of eternal life. We are living in a day where people follow after Jesus for material blessing and material benefit. These people flock to Jesus for surface level things and not spiritual things. Now Jesus will indeed take care of your every need. You and I are living testimony to that. But he'll only do that when we've come to Him for our greatest need, our spiritual need. So a question for you as you sit here this morning, why are you following Jesus? Why have you come to Jesus? Why is Jesus popular to you? There is much blessing with being morally upright. You avoid the consequences and pain that comes from being immoral. There is much blessing in being a church goer. You enter into a family that looks out for you. There is much blessing with being in a crowd of people who truly follow Jesus. Yet if you are simply here to just have your best life now and your physical needs met, you've never met Jesus. (laughs) Because for those who have truly met Jesus, now understand this, we don't rejoice because our temporary needs were given. 
but because our sins were forgiven. And our spiritual need was met. Oh, we rejoice that our heavenly father provides for his children. But we rejoice because our sins have been forgiven. And eternal life is our possession. And God as the great God that he is, meets our need. Psalm 37 verse 25 says, I have been young. And now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging for bread. God will provide our needs. Yet we don't come to him for temporary bread. Because we have come to the one who said he is the bread of life, eternal life. The believer is fixated on eternal matters. Rejoicing that God provides for the temporary matters. We pray, don't we? Give us this day our daily bread. And he abundantly provides. The believer is fixated on eternal matters. And the majority of this massive crowd that pressed in were fixated and focused solely on their physical needs. Jesus Christ is the great physician of the soul. Of the soul. And when his words were made clearer to who he truly was, you read in John chapter 6 verse 66, as a result of those words that made it very clear who he was, Many of those who followed Jesus, it says, withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. I mean, there was tens of thousands, maybe 50,000 at the start. How many at the end? 500? Jesus said, many will come to me on that day and say, Lord, Lord. Many will come to me on that day. And he'll declare to them, the many, depart from me. I never knew you. Not that I once knew you. Because you said you had a relationship with me. But I never knew you. That's what he'll say to the many. Jesus is a physician of the soul. Jesus was popular among the people. And sadly, the people were primarily fixated on the temporary benefits that they could receive. You only seek after me because I can fill your belly with bread. Sure, they had significant physical ailment and they heard that he could heal them from it. But does this not give us a window into the human heart? That for the majority of human hearts and human people, there is a blindness to the need for spiritual healing. To be dealt with on a spiritual level, with a spiritual surgery by the Savior's scalpel. Surely this is why so many prosperity preachers and those who preach a watered-down gospel are so popular. They flock to them. 
They flock in masses, seeking to have their physical and temporary needs met. And like always, Jesus is primarily concerned about the state of your soul. That's why even when he fed the crowds, he rebuked them for simply wanting a full belly. And so this crowd were aware that there was something wrong with them. They were innately aware that there was something wrong with them. Their health and their need for healing of disease and ailment. Yet they were blind to what was most wrong with them. Their spiritual state and their need to be saved. Saved from God. What do you mean? Well, it isn't sin that's after you. And isn't hell, it isn't hell that's after you. When you are in rejection of Jesus Christ, it is a holy and just God that is after you. Is that you here this morning? Do you sit here this morning with a God who isn't pleased with you? Why isn't he pleased with you? Because if you reject Jesus Christ, the greatest gift the world has ever seen, he is very displeased with you. And the intensity of his displeasure is commingled with the intensity of his love for you. That if you no longer and you cease to reject the Savior, he will pour out an abundance of love and he will abundantly pardon you for your sin. Why? Because Jesus Christ took the penalty that was due you. And he bore the wrath of that God that was going to fall on your head. He, he bore it. And that if you put your faith and hope and trust in this Jesus this day. He will abundantly forgive you. And he will abundantly pardon you. And people today are so innately aware of what supplement does this and what vitamin does that. And we let, wear little things on our wrists that tell us how our heartbeat's going, how long we've slept. And that's good. You want to try and live a healthy life. But the majority of people are so innately aware of how those things work and how the body works and what needs this and what needs that, that there isn't a care for the greatest need and it's your spiritual need. Jesus is a physician of the soul. Your body will perish, but your soul will live on somewhere. Do not face a Christless eternity. So many are blind to their greatest need to be born again from above by faith and faith alone in Jesus Christ. Too many are only interested in Jesus giving them a better life, a better job, a better marriage but not interested in Jesus granting them the forgiveness of sins when they humble themselves and put faith in Jesus Christ. So here, Jesus is exerting himself as a servant, as the chosen servant of God. And he's expelling himself among the people. 
And he was there to meet their greatest need. He withdrew from the religious hypocrites and he was crowded by those he came for. Here is the servant on display. Look at what happens just after he chooses the 12. Look at verse 20 of chapter 3. He chooses the 12. And look at verse 20. And he came home and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they couldn't even eat a meal. He was popular among the people. Look at verse 21. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him. For they were saying, he has lost his senses. He is expelling himself for people. He's giving his life for people. And people come and just want their belly full. Do you like that? Do you tack Jesus on? The servant came to serve and not to be served. Mark chapter 10 verse 45. And to give his life as a ransom for many. Not to save them from their hunger and their illnesses. But from their sins. So that was the people's response to Jesus. Surface level. Shallow. And void of desperation for their greatest need. Their own souls. The third and final response to Jesus we see as we wrap up is... The demons now pronounce. Here's a response from the demons in verses 11 and 12. Look at verse 11. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they would fall down before him and shout, You are the Son of God. And he earnestly warned them not to tell who he was. It wasn't just a crowd of physical ailments in search of healing. It included people possessed by demons. And it's here that we see the demons' response to Jesus. The demons were no doubt roaming around, obviously dwelling inside of people. That's what they do, we've seen that. Having their damaging and devastating way with people, harming the souls of people, hindering them from seeing the truth that they need. But in the presence of Jesus, we see the demons' response. They're unable to hide it. Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, what'd they do? They would fall down before him. So powerful is the Lord, Jesus Christ, that the demons panic and fall down out of fear. And look what they do. They acknowledge with complete accuracy exactly who Jesus truly is. The Son of God. A term that designates that He is God. This is the first declaration. That Jesus is the Son of God. And it comes from a demon. Peter called Jesus the Messiah. This is the first time. The first time a human declares Jesus to be the Son of God, is not until Christ is hanging on the cross and the Roman soldier looks up and said, surely this is the Son of God. So irony again here. They call it Markan irony. Mark purposely places irony 
We've seen that already. And here it is again on display. The right response from the wrong group. The people didn't respond like this. And they can be saved. The demons respond with accuracy to who Jesus is. And they cannot be saved. We see here two lessons for us. Number one. Jesus' holiness warrants a response. And number two, he is the son of God. If the massive multitude that came from everywhere understood this, they would have not pressed in to crowd him, but they would have bowed down and worshipped him. Instead, they came for self. They came to try Jesus. To see if he works. But the reality is. He is holy. And he is God. And the response to that must be a bowing low. A falling on your face. Jesus will meet the needs of his people Yet his people are his people because they saw their greatest need to bow before him and confess their sins and to confess that he is the son of God. How would the demons know that Jesus is the son of God? Well, they would have once worshipped him as exactly that before in their pride They fell. Then in verse 12, Jesus tells them, do not utter a word. He earnestly warned them to not tell who he was. Why does he do this? Jesus does this often. We've seen it already in the gospel of Mark. Why does he do this? Well, it's the same deal. Bad timing, bad advertising. Jesus doesn't want the truth of who he is coming from an evil source. He doesn't want some type of satanic infomercial declaring who he is. Nor does he want a premature exposure of who he is. Why? He's a servant. He's a servant who is obedient to the Father's will. And it's not time yet. He has people to serve. He has people to save. And he wanted those people to believe in him due to what he said and what he did, not what a demon said. So three responses. Responses indicate much. They tell us much. One response from Jesus that he withdrew to serve. A response from the people that was surface level and lacking in its greatest need. And a response from the demons that teaches us two lessons. His holiness demands a response. And he is the son of God. What is your response to Jesus? 
Perhaps you've responded in repentance and faith. Then live a life of rejoicing. (laughs) That from among a massive multitude that your mind cannot comprehend, saving grace poured out upon you. Rejoice. If you haven't yet given your life to Jesus Christ, fear. Why? Because perfect justice awaits all who reject a perfect Savior. Let's pray. Father, we give you great, great praise and worship and thanks for this life. Lord, thank you for what you give us in your word. Lord, we're given much. We're not given junk food. We're given meals, wholesome meals. May we never take it for granted. May we eat and be strengthened and march forward. And for anyone here, Lord, who has just come in the crowd or even just to visit and doesn't see their need for their greatest need, the forgiveness of their sins. Their sins are a reality. Their judgment is a reality because of their rejection, which is a reality. Would you soften their hearts, Lord? Would you save them today? And for the saints, would you sanctify us today? Thank you, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.